ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do, but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world right now. This is Emrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today, I have a very special guest whom I've been dying to interview for the longest time, but I've been so super shy. Her name is Chelsea Kent, and she is a mystery wrapped up in a really pretty, pretty bubble. You know, you can sort of see her floating around in the fresh feeding community. And yet, who is Chelsea Kent? Oh, well, um, I live in Colorado. Um, I own a retail store called Heroes Pets. I opened that store with my mom, actually, uh, coming up on 15 years ago. I've been in this industry about 20 years. I kind of fell into it. I didn't really have a specific intention to get into it, but my sister actually had a job at a pet supply store and she wanted to move out of state just as I was moving back into the state. And I ended up taking over her job and it happened to coincide with a time in my life that I was having a lot of pretty significant health problems and I was young enough that I really was totally dependent on going to doctors to try and identify how to resolve those things and being able to go through both of those experiences at the same time put me in a position of actually having curiosity to learn more and also really having a need for learning more because I went to a lot of specialists and the answers that they gave me were entirely inadequate for what I felt was appropriate, especially given my age. So I really did a lot more digging than I think I would have if it would have just been, I have this retail job and you know, people are coming in asking questions and I can research answers, but instead it was a matter of like, I have to know what the alternatives are. And so that just set me off on a path to just digging, 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 which I'm still doing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've heard your name being thrown around with such respect in the fresh feeding community for quite a few years now. And I kept looking, you know, like trying to look you up and 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 read and and figure out, you know, what you do and you know what's so special about this lady, you know. And for the life of me, I couldn't find a photo, or maybe I'm not very good as an investigator, probably, but I couldn't really find a picture of you or much about you, you know. Was that on purpose? 
Uh, not exactly. I am an introvert myself and my focus on everything is really just around the research. And I do recognize that I give people the deer in the headlights look a lot. <laughs> so I'll try to share information and there's a breaking point of what people are really capable of receiving. So I have a preference for written work because then people can just digest it at their own speed. Um, I don't do a whole lot of social media and in large part it's because it's, I do so much research and so much digging and in so many different areas and on different topics that it's really difficult for me to continue to develop what I'm doing and consolidating it into something that I can share with the public and make it digestible versus spending time following what other people are doing. So even just not being online a whole lot for social media, I think kind of limits what people see about me. <laughs> so I didn't really specifically avoid it as much as I would rather focus on learning more, digging deeper and sharing those things. So were you always like um, animal level when you were young? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And- I've always really loved animals. And I think um, the animals just got lucky with me being put into that space because my biggest focus is research and creating an environment where there's transparency and honesty and people are able to make educated decisions right now that just doesn't really exist like we are actively not being shown the things that we need to see so I would like to create some level of understanding and equality between the different things like I I don't think that there's a world where every single person is feeding fresh food it's not feasible for everybody and I think that that's okay so it's not my mission to be like everybody that's not doing fresh food is doing it wrong it's my mission to say this is the fact about each individual thing and now that you know those facts you can decide what you want to do with them so I just happen to end up in the pet space, which I do really actually appreciate, (laughs) which I'm not sure that I would have known before, but I find there's kind of two different ways of people coming to an understanding for their own lives. Like sometimes they get to this point in their own life where they're like, like, oh man, I got to make changes and I got to do better for myself. And hey, maybe I should do this for my pet too. And then on the other side of that, I'd say more often people are like, my pet has a problem and I would do anything for them. And they start learning what they can do. They make changes for their pet. They see how significant those changes are. And then all of a sudden they're like, man, maybe I should do that too. So either way, you still get the benefit of like the health of a whole family. So you said you started the pet business for like more than two decades I've been in the pet industry for two decades. I started my own store almost 15 years ago. Okay. So how would you say as a pet parent and as a business owner of a a pet, pet, pet business, you know, how has, have you changed and evolved, you know, throughout this time? Yeah. 
I would say that that is just something that I could answer with a different answer every single day because every day there's a little bit of evolution. But to kind of summarize it, um, going into it, it was just a job. Being in it for a short time, I really enjoyed being able to do the research for people and having the exposure to so many different people that had questions so that I I was able to do research on topics that otherwise I wouldn't have even thought of because I wasn't having those problems. So there was a lot of evolution in recognizing how many different things people can have issues with and need help with. And then I guess there came a point, um, I've always been an overachiever and had a lot of jobs, so never just one. Actually, to start my store, I had to quit five jobs to be able to do that. So one of those jobs, I was working as a a distributor rep. So the distributor sold only more natural and holistic pet supplies. And my job was to go around and educate store owners and staff about these things. And in being in that position made a huge difference for me because I recognize that reps don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) And even though like in a lot of cases, I was going with reps from the companies themselves. I was like, why are you the rep? (laughs) What are you talking about? So nowadays there's a few more of them that do a better job, but uh, I recognize that really the only way to get fully accurate information is to go to the source. Like you have to ask questions to the people that are making decisions, the people that are actually the ones doing the work, not the ones that were told by somebody in a perceived position of authority what is happening because that can be candy coated and I didn't think that that was appropriate so from there in starting my own store it was just um I ultimately decided that I wanted to focus on all of the things that were the most ethical the most earth friendly the cleanest the healthiest which I was surprised to find out eliminated like 90% of my favorite things. (laughs) So I could not carry the majority of things that I really liked because they didn't meet my own standards for what I could feel good about selling. So that worked out great because over time, more and more people that aligned with that, that had companies and products came to me. So my store is mostly things that are small companies, a lot of local companies. And if they're not local to Colorado, they're still small local (laughs) somewhere. Um, So that's gone really well. And then there was a point about probably six years ago or so that I started feeling a little bit burned out. And I just every day was like, I live in a box. (laughs) I come to the box. I work in the box. I leave the box. I come back to the box. And I was kind of exhausted with it and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, And I heard a quote that said, your successes become your limitations. And I realized that having the success with the store and viewing that as now a responsibility that I had meant that I was allowing myself to be limited and not expand out into anything outside of my box. And I was like, well, that's perfect because that means that I don't have to give up my success to be able to have additional successes. Instead, what I can do is figure out a way to 
cover some bases here so I have a little more freedom in what I decided to do at that point as a way to escape the box but still stay in the industry was I started attending AFCO meetings and that is just its own avalanche of a million different words that I can't even create. <laughs> um, so I started realizing that there's so much more behind the scenes. There are so many conversations that are being had among the public that aren't the conversations that we should be having because they actually don't apply. It's what we believe we should be having, but the perspective is off because we don't understand regulation. And that has created a lot of opportunity for me to learn more about different topics and things. And literally every single time I've ever opened an AFCO book, which I do pretty much daily and have for years and not once ever have I not opened it and been like, ah, that's horrifying. <laughs> How did I not notice that before? So more and more horrifying things to research, more things that are fascinating to me and just keep me really inspired to keep going. So what was, do you remember like when or why you decided to join AFCO, to take part in AFCO? Yeah, as a matter of fact, Roxanne Stone, who was with Answers Pet Food and now will be with Cure Pet Food, um, she is the one that got me going to it because I was having actually a series of conversations with her about different things. I, I guess at the time, I didn't really know that it was about regulation, but I was searching for something and there weren't good answers. And she was like, well, you have to go to the AFCO meetings. You have to go to these AFCO meetings, go to the meetings, go to the meetings. And eventually she was like, I'm going to have you talk to Susan Thixton and you're going to have to go to the AFCO meeting. So I got on the phone with Susan. And at that point I had two people that were like, you have to go to the meetings. So I finally caved. I was like, that's so expensive and it sounds really boring. <laughs> so ultimately it was the only way for me to find answers and I just got lucky enough to be directed there. And what was, what was before you went for an AFCO meeting, your, you know, you, what, what were your expectations before you, you went? And then when you went there, you know, um, how did that change? Yeah. My expectations were that I would just sit in a room full of regulators or honestly, I'm not even sure that I thought who might be there. Um, and I just thought that I'd be really bored. <laughs> just like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and I'm not sure how they're going to answer my specific questions in this meeting that isn't about what I'm asking. Um, after going there, my very first AFCO meeting was pretty exciting in the sense that like there was a conversation about the development of a ingredient called hydrogenated glycerides, which is something that the oleochemical industry uses for making soap. And the rendering industry is the one that's processing it. So it's pretty toxic. It can have mad cow. It has a lot of heavy metals. And in this meeting, those two industries got in a literal yelling match in front of 400 people over who's allowed to use it because it wasn't approved for use to give to cows. 
obvious reasons. And the oleochemical industry is like, we need that for making soap. So that was really fascinating that like anybody would be fighting over the ability to feed something toxic to animals. Mm -hmm. And then in the next meeting that I went to, hydrogenated glycerides got a definition. So it got approved for use in animal feed. And between those two things, I was like, this is the way that this goes. My mind is so blown right now. So my expectations definitely didn't align with what happened. It's, it is boring, but it's like a, a horror novel at the same time. <laughs> so you get these like, you know, in between bits where you're like having a hard time keeping your eyes open. And then they'll say something that you're just like, I can't believe they just said that. And again, it's inspiring to dig deeper, do more work, share more, allow yourself to be put in the, the line of fire. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, negative feedback from the people that are not wanting to be transparent, but it's worth it so that the public knows more. So since your first meeting till now, that's what, six years you've been going? Uh, something like that. Wow. And even though it is boring in general, you still keep going and yeah. just doing it. Wow. Why? Why, why do you keep doing that? Uh, it, well, it's the real life version of the book where there's never been a time that there's not, you know, I'm like getting through the information and you know, yeah, yeah, yada, yada. I get that. And then there's something where I'm, my mind just is blown again. And those things are also meaningful. So an example, there was just actually an AFCO meeting this week. So it just ended on Wednesday among the many conversations that they had that were horrifying, uh, one of them was around the use of antibiotics. And these days it's harder and harder to get antibiotics from a human doctor for good reason, but the veterinary world still seems to be dishing them out like candy. So the conversation between the FDA and the state departments of agriculture was all of these feed manufacturers, they wanna be able to buy antibiotics in bulk. They can't do that right now because they're not as accessible, making it so that they can't make this product year round. So they've just started using antibiotics that are not approved for use in animals. And the conversation should have been from these regulators, how do we prevent manufacturers from using unapproved drugs in their food? And instead the conversation was, how do we expedite approval of unapproved drugs because they're gonna use them anyways. So those types of things, they're so important for you to understand because again, it focuses the conversation on what you should be having. It's not a conversation of, are antibiotics good? Are they bad? It's a conversation of, should antibiotics that are unapproved, they're not scientifically researched for use in pets, or agricultural animals, should those be used just because people are gonna throw them in there so that they continue to make money rather than the government having to do more work? Wow. You know, I, I interviewed Susan Thixon some time ago and you know she shared her experiences with, with AFCO and it was really mind-blowing. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, the things that she shared. And I, you know, I have a lot of respect for, for people like you and Roxanne Stone who, who really sacrifice a lot to go to these meetings every year without fail, you know, to, mm-hmm. to be present and witness what's going on and then to report it, you know. The, what's you, how would you find the public reception of the articles that you normally share? I mean, like, do people believe you or disbelieve you? I mean, what, what kind of reaction do you normally get? Uh, it varies from thing to thing. And it also varies depending on where I put the information. So it always works out well in the end. <laughs> One of the unique things about my style of research is that I am skeptical of things, even if I want it to be true. So with most people, I find that if you tell them something that they want to hear, then they will accept it with a sigh of relief. And for me, I'm like, that sounds great. Are you full of it? (laughs) (laughs) So I do a lot of research looking at both sides of things. So it makes it so that the majority of the things that I get to the point of publishing an article form, I have a massive amount of references associated with them and it's completely indisputable. So, you know, my preference would be that people just don't even read my stuff and just read every single reference that I put in there. But I try to consolidate the important information that's in the references so that it's more digestible to people. And sometimes the way that that happens is I don't necessarily think that something needs an entire article. It doesn't need a lot of backup references for people to know about it. And I'll post like a tidbit of information on, you know, the store's Facebook page and I'll get massive pushback. Like that's lies. You don't know that's true. And every single point that the people on there make that are fighting against it i'm like oh good point i'll research that and i end up with these like massive articles of really great information where i'm able to validate or invalidate certain claims so it actually knock on wood it has yet to ever be a negative thing for me to get negative feedback from the public it always ends up strengthening the stance Uh, i will say the feedback from regulators is not ideal. And that's part of going to the AFCO meetings is that your name gets memorized by, you know, every state department of agriculture official and all of the um, center for veterinary medicine, uh, FDA officials. And there are definitely times that that can be really hard to navigate. And it's a little bit frustrating that you even feel like you need to, to be a consumer and have interest in what they're doing, you would think they'd be like, that's so cool that there are some people out there that want to know what's going on within the government and within decision-making. More often than not, it's obvious that they're tolerant of us, (laughs) but even that is pushing it. So currently, like how many, how many of you um, representatives normally go on average? Uh, Five. Not many. Yep. There was one AFCO meeting that 
I'm not sure how everybody kind of ended up going at once. I think there were almost 20 of us. So there are more people that than just the five of us <laughs> that are interested in the information, but paying the money and taking the time to actually go and take time away from everything else that you're doing in life is a much bigger commitment. Do you think they make it purposefully difficult for consumers to attend these things? Absolutely. Like it's $500 to walk in the door. That doesn't include the airfare to get there, the hotel once you're there, the car rides, the food. And then if you want to actually buy an AFCO book, it's $120. If you want to have the book plus what's available online, then that's even more. If you want any additional information, it's more. So the majority of people, especially not knowing what they're walking into, don't want to fork out two grand to try and find out. Hmm. Would you say what of all the research and articles you've put out, which one would you say was the most um, challenging one or the most important one closest to your heart that really resonated deeply with you? I do have several of them that I really like, but my all-time favorite is about uh, yellow grease or used restaurant grease in pet food. So uh, that actually started from a Facebook post (laughs) that got a whole lot of people really angry for me making that claim. And I had taken a picture of a restaurant grease bin out behind, as a matter of fact, my store because it's in a strip mall with restaurants. So all of the French fry grease and everything goes in these great big tubs out back and any temperature and they don't even have good grates on them. So rats, birds, bugs, anything at all can go in there and that gets sent to rendering facilities for the use in pet food. It's a primary fat source in dog and cat food as well as agricultural feed. So um, that one, people were really upset about that they were like there's no way it's being used and the I think my favorite thing about it was that there were probably somewhere around 50 different links where it was like just go to the the person that goes and picks these bins up and you just go to the main page and on the main page it's like we put this in pet food it was just like so blatantly obvious and they don't even try to hide it so <laughs> like some of the other things it can be a lot of digging to get to the information which can make it exhausting for me just because i know that most other people won't dig quite that deep but with this one I was like, they just so clearly are like, yeah, of course we use it for that. So it just made it so much more fun. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay. So, you know, what would you, um, as a business owner and, you know, as a pet parent, uh, what would you advise pet parents who are looking to feed their animals commercially prepared food to look out for? Uh, That would depend on which category of food. So uh, the first rule, which would cross every category of food would be um, look at the percentage of the label that is made up of non-food ingredients. 
So chemical isolates that are difficult to understand. So most people, they'll say, well, you need to have meat in the first couple of ingredients. And it, once you learn how to do the math on pet food labels, you realize that that's actually a really deceiving thing. And they can have as little as one pound of food in a, or sorry, one pound of meat in a 25 pound bag. And it's still listed as the first ingredient, which there is a reason why. Um, but if you look at the average kibble label and there, this bleeds over into other categories often, um, say that they have 50 ingredients on there, 10, maybe 15 of those will actually be of actual foods and the remainder of them are like vitamins, minerals, things like that, which don't sound bad, but even if you look in the AFCO book itself, it shows that the minerals that are in there are inextricably contaminated with heavy metals. They also are really minimally regulated. So the AFCO book gives minimum requirements for all of those, but there are very few of them that have maximum limitations. And they specifically say in the book, it's not because there's not a maximum, there's not a toxicity, it's because we don't know what it is. So we're just going to let them put any amount in there. So for example, iron for humans, we know is lethal at 60 milligrams per kilogram. And lab testing that I did with Pause for Change with Karen Becker and Rodney Habib, uh, we actually identified that the average iron content in the five different brands of kibble that we pulled was over 250 migs per kg. And one of them was 1200. So there's, <laughs> there's no natural mechanism for the body to eliminate excess iron. And that's not the only thing that there's a potential issue with. So when it's a man-made isolate, there's potential for contamination. There's potential for mistakes. We see that with the recent Hills recalls. They accidentally put a massive amount of vitamin D in a bunch of their foods, including prescription foods killed, I don't even know how many dogs and cats. So I'd say try to avoid those as often as possible. Um, that said, I think it's also important that a company validates their claims. So if they say that they're complete and balanced, how do they know that? Like, did they guess that? <laughs> so you usually can't see that on a label, but it's really important that you figure out Primarily, I guess the big statement is make sure that they know more about their own product than you do. And when you know the right questions to ask, you'll usually find out that they don't, even if you don't know anything about their product. <laughs> they should also do pathogen testing, um, even if it's a dry food. The CDC website, if you go to the outbreak pages on salmonella, you'll see that the only pet food, and you can do this with E. coli and listeria too, um, but the only pet food products that have actually ever been linked to a CDC regulated outbreak for pathogens are kibble. So 2008, 2007, 2012, there were different outbreaks where humans got sick from touching kibble products. There are no instances where raw foods or freeze-dried foods have been involved. So even if it's a dry food, they should be checking it for pathogens. Um, 
outside of that, there's just so much that you can't see on a label. You just really should get an AFCO book, <laughs> which I hate to say, give them money. Um, we are working on trying to make that book free. Uh, and there are a few places online that you can get information. You can always email me. I'll send you some definitions. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you know, as a pet parent, I think majority of pet parents really don't know what's going on. I mean, like, I'm a rescuer. I'm, I'm, I'm an animal welfare volunteer in Singapore. And yet, you know, um, most of us don't think about what we're feeding the animals and how it can affect their health. I remember when I started being a community cat caregiver in my estate, in my neighborhood, and I didn't know anything. So I deferred to the veterans in my neighborhood. So they'll say like, they're all feeding dry food, right? So say here, feed dry food, you know, it's easy. If you can afford it, then maybe wet canned food, because we all know wet canned food is more expensive than dry food. So, mm -hmm. okay, I did that. And then I realized that I was, the cats that I fed would look really shitty. They get sick very easily. And I would start sending the cats to the vet on almost a scary regular basis. You know, if it's not the eyes, it's something cat flu or something. And I could easily spend a couple of thousand dollars a month just on vet, vet bills, not for my own pet animals, but for stray animals that I was feeding as a volunteer. And that terrified me because I was thinking, is this normal? You know, and why is it so expensive? And all the vet you would tell me is to feed prescription diet and to cure anything, it would always be a round of antibiotics or steroids. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the usual thing. Until like I spent so much money, I went, okay, time out. <laughs> Uh, something's not right. And that's when I started to do a bit more research and open my mind a bit more, you know, and that's where I thank Google in that sense, where I started mm -hmm. to learn and I found Dr. Karen Becker, uh, her website information and Rodney Habib, you know, and Susan Thixton. And, you know, my mind just started to really open up to how much pet food companies actually hit behind the scenes and, very carefully, I, I don't really want to say the word, but lie or, mm -hmm. you know, confuse mm -hmm. the public on, on what is healthy. Because when you look at the packaging, they'll tell you that it's natural or they have a very nice picture of um, a cow on a field or something or a nice steak with some carrots and peas, you know, mm -hmm. to tell you that it's, it's a natural product. And sadly, I used to be one of those pet parents that just looked at the packaging, mm -hmm. but I didn't read the labels, you know? So, yeah. you know, and I, I realized just so many of me out there in Singapore and not just Singapore, around the world who trust the vet to teach us everything about nutrition. And in my, in my journey of, of reading up, I realized that, oh, conventional vets don't actually learn much about nutrition in school mm -hmm. and that was a a real you know wake up moment for me um going back to your pet store where you were looking into looking for ethical um, goods to sell and food to sell would you right from the start looking for what kind of food were you looking for when you started out 
Yeah. So being that I worked for a distribution company and I'd been in the industry for a while, I had a good idea of some brands that were better than other brands, but it, you know, the more you learn, the more changes you make. So, you know, there's in the nearly 15 years that we've been in business, I just counted the other day, I've dropped almost 50 companies. Wow. And they're big companies that at one point were really prevalent in the store. Like some of them were almost in every category of the store. So dropping them was really difficult, but you know, the more, you know, the more you, you have to make those decisions and you also have to let other companies have a little bit of freedom too. So for example, when Dogswell had a recall, on some of their cat products because they had propylene glycol in the vitamin E. Like vitamin E is a preservative, a natural preservative that is used to replace propylene glycol. So I was like, why is there a preservative in the preservative? (laughs) I didn't know about that. So then all of a sudden I'm like, well, what about everybody else's vitamin E? So I went ahead and I emailed every single company that we had. And I'm like, do you guys have propylene glycol in your vitamin E? And also at the same time I had learned because I was looking at different reports and stuff Uh, that vitamin E is usually sourced from genetically modified soy. So I was asking them about that as well. And most of the companies were like, I have no idea. (laughs) Can I get back to you? So, you know, I had to give them, uh, I'd say the longest took almost six months to even answer me because they didn't know. And several of them came back and they were like, so now it doesn't have those things <laughs> because we didn't know that that was something that we should be looking for. And because you asked us, we made a change. So, you know, there are a lot of things that I felt really confident with before that now I'm like, oh man, I should have known better. But that is the progression that we all go through. Like first it's your own pet, you know, for me, We had a family dog when I was a teenager. She was a chow golden retriever mix and she was eating pro plan. And at seven years old, we were putting her down. Like she, there was no way she was going to make it any longer. Her whole face was gray. She was getting uh, hematomas in her ears all the time from allergies. And she had had multiple surgeries. She could barely walk upstairs by herself. And, you know, we ended up switching just to a different kibble. It went from pro plan to solid gold. And at the time, solid gold was actually a brand new company. It was still in brown bags with a sticker on it. Um, But even just switching from kibble to kibble that's not just made out of chemicals, (laughs) that alone, she lived another 10 years and she didn't have a gray face until she was 16 years old. She didn't have arthritis till she was like 15 years old. So she had complete turnaround in that very first, you know, few months of switching and lived a lot longer. So everybody, even the people that seem like they know so much, they started in that same position of learning something and feeling guilty, just like everybody else, just like you might when you're learning things. And, you know, as a retailer, it can be even harder because it's not just your pet that you're making decisions for. So, 
I take it very serious to continue learning. But when we first opened, I had probably um, maybe 60% kibble and about maybe 20% like dehydrated, freeze-dried, air-dried, and then 10% canned, 10% raw. And now it's pretty much reversed where I have very, very little kibble. Um, I kind of count carnivore as a kibble and then just tons of freezers everywhere. <laughs> but it's taken a long time. <laughs> oh, you know, when did you start um, you said you just, you know, like for your family dog, you switched from just pro plan to solid go and that extended another 10 years of, mm -hmm. of her life. When did you start looking and I mean, like, say switching to a different diet from kibble for your, for your own animal? Yeah, actually, um, I was already selling a lot of raw food before I fully went to the point of like, I will never touch kibble again. So I already believed in it a lot, but wasn't exclusively using it on my own animals until my aunt died and her um, border collie was given to my grandma and then my grandma died. And so I ended up with the border collie. <laughs> I know it was a really rough couple of years. Uh, so this dog, again, border collie, he was supposed to be 60 pounds. And when I got him, he was almost 120 pounds. And he had been on a diet kibble a quote unquote higher quality one for years and he had lost two pounds. So he couldn't stand up if he wasn't on carpet unless you helped him. So I was like, well, I gotta get the weight off of him quick. I'll put him on raw. I'll put my dog on raw just cause it's easier to do them both. And you know, once he loses the weight then we'll just decide then. So I, in three months he was down to 60 pounds. One thing that was really interesting to me is like, I, I had caloric restriction, of course, but not ridiculous. And so when he got down to the right weight, I was like, all right, let's go back up in the food. So you don't lose more weight. And within a week, he gained five pounds. So I dropped him back down to the restricted amount and he stayed the same weight. So I thought that was really interesting that like when you're feeding the right thing, your body balances you like you don't have to work so hard <laughs> to train achieve the results that you want so at the time my dog was a boxer and so when that three months was up I was like well I'll start giving him some kibble again thinking that the kibble that I was doing was pretty good I regretted that for several weeks, <laughs> like within one meal, both dogs were shedding significantly more, their breaths stunk within a meal, they, um, their coats were like kind of slimy, my boxer especially, you know, you cross your eyes 30 feet away from them and they have diarrhea for two weeks, so I got to deal with that fun, <laughs> so I was like, okay, we'll go back to raw and, you know, we'll try it again sometime in the future. And like another three months goes by and I'm like, oh, it was probably a fluke and one meal of kibble and was like, what in the world was I thinking? <laughs> and so never since then have I given my own pets of any kind, even foster pets kibble. And since starting to go to the AFCO meetings, there are only 
really three kibbles that I am willing to physically touch with my own hands. Cause the, once you know what you learn in the AFCO meetings, like I literally fear for my life in touching kibble. Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. For the, for the benefit of my listeners, especially my friends who are in the rescue animals, could you explain why? Because a lot of rescuers in shelters especially do feed kibble for economic Mm -hmm. reasons. If you could just explain to them why. And I do think, again, there are a couple of brands out there that the sticker prices might seem higher, but you feed less. So you can get into the same price point and have a better product. So there are ways to work with that. But the reason is um, that, well, there's a zillion reasons. Um, One is the number of chemicals that are used. So for example, and this goes back to knowing the right conversation to have, and I talk about this one a lot because it's the most frustrating, (laughs) corn gluten meal, which is a primary ingredient in most prescription foods. Corn gluten meal is not something that a human would ever be allowed to eat because it is registered by the EPA as a chemical not a food. It is a byproduct of the biodiesel industry. So corn goes into biodiesel production. They ferment and chemically extract the starches out for ethanol production. And then that high protein trash, because they needed the starch and sugars. So that high protein trash is what goes into pet food. Now, in order for that process to occur, they have 16 different chemical ingredients that they put in there, including sulfur dioxide, which is considered one of the most toxic chemicals, anhydrous ammonia, also toxic, liquid urea, three different kinds of antibiotics, like I could go on. <laughs> um, and then there are also a lot of potential diseases and there is evidence that this is a consistent issue. So for example, Um, Tularemia has been associated with being in certain pet foods, and the reason for that is because condemned rendered meats end up in pet food. So it's the things where they know that the animal was really sick or already dead, like something seriously wrong. You can't feed that to a person. So it goes into rendering and they're like, well, it's high heat processed for a really long time. We should have sterilized everything out of there, but there's not a really consistent track record with that being true 100% of the time. So you can end up with some really difficult things to get rid of that then get transferred into your pet's food. And like, if you take the CDC map of tularemia outbreaks and you overlay it on a map of all of the pet food manufacturers in the country, and to be fair, I mean like big corporate, you know, like huge, not itty bitty companies, they match. So you can actually see that there's a likely correlation. Oh man. So with like with shelters where, you know, they have to work on a very tight budget and mostly people who donate food usually will donate usually kibble, sometimes Mm -hmm. a bit of wet canned food. Um, And in Singapore for economic reasons uh, being Asia rice is a staple diet here for most Asian people so a lot of a lot of animal lovers do cook rice for their animals here mm-hmm. how would 
what would you recommend for a shelter that is trying, trying, say they, they hear what you're saying, you know, mm-hmm. and, but because of cost, right? How, how would you advise them or recommend, like how can they try and improve the food without breaking the bank so much? Yeah. So one, just research the companies so that that are obviously accessible in whatever area that you're in uh, and try to identify which ones seem transparent enough to feel a little bit more comfortable with. Two, a lot of, I mean, so my store actually has a big donation bin in the back. So we collect donations for people to pick up and take to the shelters. So I have a pretty good idea of the types of things that get donated. And at least in my area, people spend a decent amount of money on donations. So in a lot of cases, they went and purchased something for the purpose of donating it. And in some cases, they purchased something, decided not to use it for a number of different reasons, and then they donated it. But they chose to do that instead of taking it back. So I think if I were in that position, one, I would get those really thick yellow rubber gloves that go up all the way <laughs> uh, if I'm using kibble. But also, I would just start working really hard at a campaign of like requesting that people bring you other things, like request that they donate raw foods or freeze dried foods or dehydrated foods or fresh foods. Like instead of bringing me $60 worth of Purina, can you instead bring me $60 worth of, and like make a list, you know, organ meat, if you can find chicken hearts or livers or, you know, actual meat, even if you guys ended up having to cook some of it to make sure that it's safe, people probably would even donate freezers. So I would work really hard at campaigning to try and just get different donations because I absolutely believe that people care enough to want to donate the right thing and they don't know any better than to bring what they themselves have been using. So it's also a good way to raise awareness for the people that are using those products and donating them too. Yeah, I, I hear you. Because like within my small volunteer group in my neighborhood, we actually put um, signages around where we feed. Please do not feed kibble. It makes them very sick and it costs a lot of money to send them. You know, vet bills are expensive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we like to, there's basically just four of us in my little mm-hmm. area there, my where I live. But, you know, um, when we feed, we people are usually very curious because I, when I realized what Kibble was doing to the cat's health, I, I made a decision which was actually a bit painful to the pocket was that not feeding dry food anymore. We're going to feed wet canned food, which obviously cost a lot more. And then I decided like, we're going to feed a mix of raw and wet canned food you know, with freeze-dried as our kibble, you know, the umami taste, as we call it, to try and entice the cats to eat. Because we know as stray cats, they will eat anything anyway, and there, there are lots of other feeders besides us. But I wanted to, to change the diet of the cats that we personally fed. And within a couple of months, I would even say definitely within a year, we saw a huge reduction in our vet bills. Like... Mm-hmm. We didn't really have to bring anyone to the vet unless it was 
a newly abandoned cat that needed to be sterilized. And because it was abandoned, it was in a poor condition. But other than that, the cats that we fed and ate from us consistently, their coat started to look better. Even though we fed a mix of wet and raw, you know, just, just doing that, you know, mm-hmm. and a bit of probiotics, a bit of like spirulina or chlorella, we'll add it in and eggs or bone broth, whatever. Um, they, they, they look cleaner. They look healthier. They didn't, we don't have any obese cats in our area. Okay. Whereas the ones like say across the road, you can see there's a different coat, a different look altogether. And people would actually ask us like, is this your pet cat? I said, no, these are stray cats. These are community cats that we care for as volunteers. And they're like, really? You know, they all look so young. And, you know, um, the oldest community cat that's still alive right now is 18 years old in, in my area. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, like, obviously he eats other stuff, but because we try to introduce better quality food within our budget, it makes a huge difference, you know, mm-hmm. and we realize that when it's their time to go, they go really fast. It, yeah. It's not a dragged out scenario, you know, where it will cost too much. And, you know, um, when their battery runs out, it's just a really quick, quick change for them and they're passing yeah. you know and that's a great point for pet parents too that think that it's too expensive for their own pets to feed fresh food because you know if you're spending money for your own pet to go to the vet then you're going to be saving money if you don't have to do that even if you do have to spend more on the food but also one thing i always tell my customers like try to identify first, what is it that you are trying to buy? So normally if you ask a person, okay, you have meat or protein, protein, fat, fiber, carbs. Now you're feeding your dog or your cat, which one of those is the most important to you? Pretty much everybody is going to say protein. Now you take a kibble food and you say, okay, here's a kibble food. This one, let's say $50 for 50 pounds, you know, and out of this, you're getting, let's say on the high end, three pounds of meat in 50 pounds. So it's going to take your dog, let's say a month to get one pound of meat versus, and that's for 50 bucks versus over here, you have this six pound package that's $40, but it's all meat with just a couple of other ingredients that maybe on the high end make up 10% of the product. So you're actually spending probably something like $7 a pound for meat versus, you know, $20 a pound for meat. So if you look at it from that angle too, like what's important to you is that you're feeding meat. That is not what you're achieving when you're purchasing kibble. So if you want to achieve your goals, then kibble's off the table. (laughs) Like you're saving money because you're not buying stuff that is just going to come out as poop. Yeah. Um, so how, how would you explain to some parents, you know, like some pet parents, or even especially in the shelters, that the number one thing they're very afraid of is salmonella. When they hear Mm -hmm. raw food, you know, um, they get very queasy and they think it's a hygiene public health issue. So that's why they say, oh, we, we won't feed raw food because it's dangerous. You yeah. Know, how, how would you explain that? Well, to do that in less than 10 days is hard, but I'll try. <laughs> There's so much to say about that. So first thing that I think is a really important concept for people to understand is 
bacteria is not always pathogenic. So a pathogen is a bacteria that causes illness. So some bacteria can be pathogenic and cause illness, but not all of them. So if you look in an AFCO book, then you can actually find multiple different references to the use of different strains of bacterial, not pathogenic, E. coli and Campylobacter as supplements. So there are, with salmonella, more than 5,000 different identified serovars. The CDC only tracks nine because the rest of them are not important. Like the, the likelihood of a person getting sick from those is very, very low. So there's more than that. There's actually 47 of them that I think are worth being a little bit concerned about, but you still have to have a high load and usually a suppressed immune system to get sick. Two, dogs and cats are very different anatomically from people. So with a person, you don't actually have um, enzymes in your saliva that help to kill pathogens. Your saliva will break down starches. Dogs and cats, it'll kill pathogens. Then when it gets to your stomach, you have an itty bitty stomach with a pH of three versus a dog or a cat, they have huge stomachs with a pH of one, which is way more acidic. So right there, they get this huge acid bath that kills even more pathogens. So then from there in a human, you have a very, very long intestinal tract and a cecum where things can go in and ferment and it can take anywhere from a day to in some people a month, God forbid, if you're one of those people, <laughs> like it can take a long time for stuff to actually come out. So that entire period of time, it's sitting in there, allowing pathogens to proliferate and create illness in dogs and cats. It's like a garbage chute. It's out within six to eight hours. Even if you're adding fibers, you're not decreasing that very much. So there's, there's not a whole lot of, um, of opportunity for pathogens to become a problem in animals. They are really designed to tolerate those. Plus the risk is really low. Now, I don't know the rules in Singapore, but in the United States, um, meat that is for human food consumption is under USDA jurisdiction. Meat that's for pet food consumption is FDA jurisdiction. So even if it's a USDA product, it is regulated once it says pet food on it by the FDA. So since the FDA doesn't know what they're doing with meat, <laughs> nor have they ever, that's USDA you know, work, the USDA is like, eh, pathogens, meh, not that big of a deal. Primarily because when you bring home meat, you're supposed to cook it. So you sterilize that product when you get home, making pathogens not super risky unless you just decided to do a bad job of cleaning your kitchen and cooking your meat. So even though it might be a USDA product, once it says pet food on there, they actually have to adhere to a zero tolerance policy because the FDA is like, pretty much since we have no idea what we're doing, we're just going to say no pathogens are okay. And since we also don't understand pathogens, we're going to say that bacteria in those families are also not okay. So by federal law, 
you actually have to prove that it's a pathogen, not a bacteria, and that it's in a quantity that is capable of causing illness rather than just, you know, like the tiniest little bit that wouldn't make anybody sick. And FDA does not adhere to federal law on that, which in this case is in your benefit (laughs) because they will force a pet food company to recall, even if it's a serovar that has never been shown to cause illness. And even if it's in a level that we know for a fact will not cause illness. So if it says pet food on it, you should feel pretty good about it. If it is USDA and you have a pet that has a suppressed immune system or really slow digestion for some unknown reason, then you might consider cooking it a little bit. Or if you're just terrified, like if you don't bring meat into your home for you and your family to eat, and it's like that degree of fear (laughs) because otherwise you're bringing those pathogens in anyways, Um, but you can go ahead and just lightly cook it because that's how you kill those. Right. Okay. So, you know, with parents, raw food, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's always, they get really scared hearing the word raw. Um, I remember when I started, when I fed my, started to feed my animals at home raw and I told people, they're like, raw? What do you mean raw? Do you mean you cook it? No, no, no. I feed raw as in Mm -hmm. not cook. And they look very concerned, like, um, doesn't it make them sick or, you know, their poop, you know, like a lot of bacteria in their poop. And I remember there was one, a doctor who um, she rescued a kitten and the kitten was, wasn't well. It was on prescription diet and a lot of medication and it it was having like bloody poop and all that. And she asked me, what should she do? And I said, well, my instinctive reaction, because I'm a raw feeder is why don't you switch out the diet? and just try and feed a very simple raw meat to start with or bone meal or something, you know, just, just to start cleaning out the system. And then she, she did at first, but because she gave a sample of the poop during that change, you know, when it was still on, on the kibble um, to the vet and the vet said, oh, tested for E. coli. And, and said like, so the vet told her, like, don't feed raw food because you're going to kill your pet. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what would be your response for that? Yeah, there's never been an E. coli recall associated with a commercially available raw pet food. And E. coli should be in the intestines. So the only time that those things are an issue is if your pet's actually symptomatic. So my normal response, though, <laughs> is... First off, go back to the CDC data. Let's take a look at what types of things are historically dangerous. As I mentioned earlier, they do put pet food in there if there's an issue. It's just never been able to prove that there's an issue with any kind of commercially available raw pet foods. But let's see, you know, say you have a kid, what kinds of foods do you feed them? And let's compare that to the outbreak list on the CDC, soft cheeses, pistachios, cantaloupe, peaches, peanut butter, ice cream, all of those things are on there like a hundred times. So they're like massively dangerous. Other things, turtles, hedgehogs, geckos, all of those cause outbreaks. How many people have children that have 
animals like those animals that we know for a fact are regularly contaminated with things like salmonella. So you put up with all of those things. Now you take your kid to a playground and you let them play outside on playground equipment that's covered in bird poop that's full of salmonella. Like you have to really take a look at like what is your overall exposure and stop being afraid of things that you have been directed to be afraid of because big companies want to be able to make money off of you. So then in addition to that, uh, the FDA always references this one study where they intentionally fed 16 dogs uh, salmonella contaminated chicken and then they were testing their poop to see who was pooping it out and how much and blah, 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 blah. So what they found is that if you intentionally feed salmonella to your dog, four out of 10 of them will poop it out. So like the way that they word that is 44% are going to poop it out. Okay. But that means that even more of them, the majority, 56% of them will kill it in their gut before it comes out the other side. One thing that they don't mention about that study is that out of all 16 dogs, only one of them pooped out the same cerevar that they consumed, implying that all of the rest of them just had salmonella innately in their gut and it was not actually associated with what they were fed. Now, compare that to another study, I believe the number was 8,257 rectal swabs were done on dogs that, uh, I know it's gross, <laughs> um, but they were done on dogs that also eat kibble. So like basically dogs that have uh, sterilized foods, how much do they poop out salmonella? And they found that three out of 10 dogs poop out salmonella. So if you have a dog eating a sterilized food and dogs eating intentionally contaminated food is three out of 10 versus four out of 10 that are pooping it out. So scientifically, you cannot actually say that your dog is riskier to you or your family or even to themselves with exposure to even known pathogenic things. Oh, I'll also add in that FDA study, where they fed the 16 dogs, not a single one got sick. You have an amazing brain. Thanks. <laughs> I, cause I'm not a smart cookie like you. So I'm, <laughs> honestly, I am in awe of anyone like you or Susan Thixton, who does so much deep diving research into all these things, because it's like, you know, like a bloodhound, you know, like you really go for the juggler, you keep digging and asking questions. And I respect that because it means you're being very conscious and intentional in, in searching for the right answers, asking a lot of questions and digging them up and then presenting it and sharing it with the world, especially with pet parents and also pet businesses who are in the business of making pet food to educate them, you know, mm -hmm. and this is something which sadly, I think a lot of regular pet parents that I know of, they are not that conscious and aware, you know, they, they really don't think what they're feeding can affect the health of the animals, which is so ironic when, when they seem to be a bit more better with, oh, yes, my doctor said I need to eat less processed food and more mm -hmm. greens. But when you go to the vet, they keep giving you the processed food as the answer to 
to all ailments, you know. Um, yeah. Really. How, how would you advise pet parents who are, who are, say, becoming more aware and wanting to feed better quality food? And when, say, they are raw feeders or fresh food feeders and they're trying to have a conversation with their conventional vet who might mm-hmm. not be open to it, how, what, how, what, what would you advise them? Because I've had some parents who say like, oh, I don't tell them that I feed raw at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, that's my recommendation is just don't talk about it. So like for my mom, you know, she knows a lot of things, of course, but she she can't pull up the data the way that I can. So like I could go toe to toe with them. But with her, I'm like, just either nod and grin and say, thank you very much. And just don't take that portion of advice or stop them in the tracks and say, I am not willing to engage in that conversation with you because don't say this part, but veterinarians, they are trained in diagnostics and pharmaceuticals and surgeries. So remember when you need a doctor, there are a plethora of different options for you to choose from. Like if you needed brain surgery, you're not going to a doctor that specializes in surgeries on ankles. You're not going to a general practice doctor. You're not going to a doctor at all. If you need massage or chiropractics, like there, we have so many different people that are trained on individual things about the body because it's not possible for one person to know enough about every single topic and how to address it appropriately, that you can just consolidate that all into one person. It takes so much work, but here we have vets where we're like, oh, medical deity, they know everything. And we don't consider they go to school for the same amount of time as doctors, but they have to cover multiple species. So that even dilutes their education more on certain topics. So in my mind, it's not disrespectful to say, I'm not willing to engage in that conversation with you because they're not trained to specialize in that. And that's okay. But like, if somebody comes to me and they want, you know, an education on pharmaceuticals or they need a surgery, I'm going to say, I don't do that. So I'm not offended that I don't do that. I chose to not do that. Your vet shouldn't be offended that they chose not to learn more about nutrition. Right. Cool. Good thinking. Okay. (laughs) No, I like that because, you know, we get, we get a lot of these questions from adopters who are say switching to raw and then they get nervous about talking to, to, to the vets. And in Singapore, we, all our vets are conventionally trained. We don't actually have like true holistic integrative vets like, like in the US. Uh, we might have some vets here who practice like TCBM, like acupuncture, you know, or dish out the herb, the herbal stuff. But at the end of the day, they still rely on their conventional methods or, or way of thinking, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's a business to them. I mean, that's what they're comfortable with. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day. So, but always compare it to your own situation or a situation with a child. Like, you as an individual can say that you're still dependent on a conventional general practice doctor for 
times when you think that you might need a bigger treatment, but that doesn't mean that you can't go to any other number of individuals that specialize in other things. You're not doing wrong by having a team of people to support your needs. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I, I usually tell them. Like, I would say like, I said, we need the conventional vets for the diagnostic tools because that's the mm-hmm. only way you're going to get a baseline or an understanding of what, where your, your, your animal is health-wise. You know, um, there is the medication and the conventional approach for diseases. But I said, I'm like, well, in Singapore, if you can't find a vet that you can talk to comfortably about food, I always tell them like, you know, there are lots of online um integrative holistic vets out there that you could actually like have an online consultation with them as well to Mm -hmm. broaden your as you say build your team Mm -hmm. you know so that you have different perspectives as well and then you can make a a a better informed decision on how you want to care for your animal you know so Mm -hmm. yeah and I don't Uh, think that I know anybody that recommends that people go to a vet as often as I do So for me, I'm constantly like, you can make an assumption that this is the thing that you're dealing with, but you're still guessing and you may or may not get good results in what you're trying. And it might take you a really long time to get good results because you guessed wrong, or you could go to the vet and do the following diagnostics and validate that you are on the right track. And then you can get straight to the point and choose, if you'd like, a holistic treatment that aligns with those validated results. So as holistic as I am when it comes to food and using herbs and everything, I'm constantly like, go to the vet, establish trends, validate, (laughs) do this. Exactly. You you do have to have a vet. And I don't tell people that they have to go to a holistic vet for those things. Any vet can do those things. Just find one. Yeah, I yeah, I hear you because sometimes I get my friends who will like text me like, you know, something like they'll show me a picture of their dog or the skin or something. And I say, like, well, have you been to the vet yet? Because mm-hmm. I say I'm not a trained vet. I can't diagnose this. And it's, you know, and it's a picture. And I'm sorry, your picture's not very clear either, you know, <laughs> which is usually the case <laughs> sometimes. So, you know, I'll tell them like, you really should go and see a vet if you are concerned about something so that at least you can be sure what you're dealing with. And then once you know the, 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 you know, what they've diagnosed, you can come back to me and, and tell me what did the vet tell you to do. And then, you know, mm-hmm. we can discuss like, you know, is there, is there a gentler or better way or, you know, a different way of doing it without too many drug side effects, put it this way. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what Absolutely. I normally tell all my friends. Um, with your mission to educate people with the pet food industry, you know, um, what's your experience with the companies that you deal with over in, you know, over there in Colorado? Um, you deal with a lot of small businesses, boutique businesses. Um, how do you find when you're dealing with them, are they receptive and open to you asking questions about the sourcing, for instance, or how they produce the food, you know, mm-hmm. in general, or do you get pushback in general, you know, what, what, mm-hmm. what's your experience been so far? 
Uh, well, I've learned that I do need to be kind of meticulous in the way that I ask, because I think initially when I asked a lot of questions, it, I didn't um, make it really clear that I'm not looking for a specific answer, especially in retail. Like you can't have everything be a hundred percent of your standards all the time. So what you have to offer is knowledge. Like you have two beef liver treats. <laughs> this one is organic. This one isn't. You buy what you want to buy. So just because it doesn't have the absolute highest standards doesn't mean that I'm going to reject it. It just means I need to know so that I can decide whether or not it's in a range of standards that I think is acceptable. So I've had to be really careful about that. Uh, outside of that, I think in general, people are pretty receptive to it because it educates them as well. So especially with the really small companies, I don't know if it's a matter of them just not realizing that they needed some consulting or uh, if they just couldn't afford it. But a lot of times when new companies come to me, they're like, hey, we think that you'd love selling this product. And I'm like, well, is it registered with the Department of Agriculture? Did you do the following tests on it? Your label is wrong and you're going to get in trouble. And I probably saved them a lot of headache and a lot of money down the road by forcing them to do things that are compliant with regulation. Or um, like I've had companies before that they bring a finished product and I'm only interested in carrying it if one specific ingredient that I know is a problem is either switched to organic or they are lab validating um, the incoming source of that to see if it's full of pesticides, things like that. And in a lot of cases, they're like, well, I just didn't even know that. And they swap it out and they feel better about their own products so I feel like pretty much I'm just helpful, even if sometimes it takes them a lot longer to get something out than what they would like. I still feel like in general, people want to do the right thing when it's a small company. Like they just committed their lives to doing something better than what they thought that they could find. They want to do it right. You know, you, you're a very generous, generous person <laughs> and, and you're very, you're, you're very optimistic. I, is that is that your nature normally? Yes. <laughs> wow. Even with everything you learn about Afco and and all the the dirty secrets in the pet food industry, it, you know it doesn't face you. I mean, it sort of galvanizes you somehow to to keep searching. Well, everybody's human. So, like I was saying earlier, you know, when any one of us finds out that something that we didn't know allowed us to make a choice that we later learned about and we immediately feel guilty. So everybody has that experience when they learn that they have been doing something that might've been damaging someone or something that they loved. Now you take a regulator, same normal person that's going to feel guilty and you put them into that position. Now, not only do they feel guilt, the same way that you and I do, but they also have to deal with figuring out fear because if they change things, they could lose their job. So like you have these tiers of emotions that these people have to deal with. So as much as I can shake my head and be frustrated and know that they need to do better, I know that 
when they're not doing better with few exceptions, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, it's because they still haven't processed their guilt and their fear to get them to a point of changing their actions or trying to change somebody else's actions that's close to them. So I just always keep in mind the human perspective. And I recognize that even if they're not doing better, there's a part of them in there <laughs> that's struggling to figure out how. <laughs> wow. You're, you're really awesome. You're really, <laughs> you're really, really awesome. I, I love, I love your philosophy and, and your approach because a lot of people are judgmental. A lot of people are quick to anger, you know, um, sometimes I think with a bit of a double standard there because, you know, they, they like to point fingers at other people, but when you ask them to reflect on their own, they, they don't really do it or they sort of gloss over, you know, and I, I, I really love the, the, the way that you say that, well, we all don't know until we know better and then we try and change it. You know, I really respect that. And I myself used to be a really judgmental bitch, you know, and, and now over the years, um, you know, I've, I've realized that I can't be so inflexible in my thinking as well because we all make mistakes and knowledge is forever changing and evolving based on what we know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you catch more flies with honey, right? I mean, if I go to a company and I suggest that they make a change by saying you're doing everything wrong, you guys are horrible if you don't change this, they're likely to be like, Psh, crazy click versus if I'm like, hey, I really would love to be excited about your stuff, but I'm not because da -da 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 -da. and if these things changed in some way, then I could really get behind it and that would make me really happy. They're like, oh, I love that you would like to be happy about it. We want to make you happy. <laughs> You're so very diplomatic. <laughs> Your superpowers, diplomacy and deep diving. Really? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So if everybody was doing that, though, if every consumer were interested in attempting to influence change, by being positive, then we, we would have less of that, like, well, I'm on this side and you're on this side and we're just never going to see eye to eye. It doesn't actually have to be eye to eye. It just has to be, is that the best you can do? And if you can do better, do you mind? Cause that'd be great. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Wow. Yes, definitely. I love, I love, I love this conversation we're having so far. It's really, really good. You know, um, you know, as a business owner, um, because you said you, you had to cut out a lot of brands as you were comparing it with your, your list of standards mm -hmm. or what you wanted, you know, like your ideal of what you wanted to sell aligned with your values. Um, I, I'm thinking that was not easy money-wise, investment-wise. Did it, you know, did it ever like hurt your business to a point where did you ever think that maybe you're, you might have to close shop because it would no. be difficult. No, no. Um, when the first time that I dropped a company that we sold really well was terrifying 
the more times that I've done it, even when they're really big companies like answers, <laughs> uh, you know, we actually sell more answers than anybody else in the country. And I, at this point, I'm like, eh, well, you know, we've dumped other things. Man. <laughs> so what I found though, was the more often that I did it, the more loyalty that I got from customers. So initially they were like, ah, what do I feed now? This is going to be so obnoxious and I have to switch. And like, there was frustration and I know that I did lose some people, but the more often that I've done it, the more often I hear, even when we're not in the midst of dropping things, my customers come in and go out of their way to be like, thank you so much for not making me do your job. <laughs> like they really, really appreciate that they don't have to think really hard about whether or not the thing that they're using right now is okay. Because if that same thing that I've always told them is wonderful is no longer okay, they know that they don't have to question whether or not I'm going to boot it. They are, they are at a point now where if I'm like, yeah, we decided to let that go. They're like, okay, what now? <laughs> they just have no issues with switching and actually appreciate it. Wow. So it, it sounds like like you and your business, like your, your vision for your company and, you know, like what you want to sell was very quite clear mm -hmm. from the beginning, like what you wanted to achieve. And do you feel looking back now, do you, you know, like what, are you satisfied? Are you happy? Do you think you've achieved your aims or is there more that you want to do? Oh, there's so much more. Yes. <laughs> there's, I think that, you know, for an endless amount of time, I could always be too busy to keep up with myself, even if I had 4 million minions helping me at any given time. Like there's so much to do and so many things that are interesting. And some of those things are really hard things like uh, Cole Harrington that made Pet Fooled, he does really hard things and like things that most people are averse to. He is spectacular as a warrior. I mean, he's just like got his machete and he's out there <laughs> doing the scary battles. And then there are other people like Karen Becker, uh, where most of what she does is towards the more positive. Like she just wants to learn that this is better, not fight that this is worse. So no matter what your personality type is, like you can find a way to to make change <laughs> by uh, aligning with what really works for you. So yeah, there's absolutely a lot more. Um, looking back, I definitely can't fault myself for anything that I ever thought was a great product and decided later on that it wasn't because just like every other human, I'm still learning too. And I will continue to learn and I will continue to you know, have times in my life where I'm like, oh God, in the heart. I thought that was okay. <laughs> Just like everybody else, but we all do the best that we can. I really love the fact, and I respect this about you, is that when you believe in something and then some new information comes out and you realize that, okay, what I thought was right or good, maybe not so anymore. And you're mm -hmm. willing to actually publicly say that and, mm -hmm. and, and share with people, you know, that, you know, you, you are thinking you're changing, you know, I, not many people do that. Mm -hmm. 
really well I hope that it makes it so that other people feel like they have the right to do that too like there's no reason to be embarrassed by that the only time that you should kick yourself for it is if you learned and didn't make a change like you learned about it and you're like well I'm just gonna keep doing the same thing yeah okay then you have a right to feel guilty (laughs) but otherwise you know we're all just kind of on this journey together and I hope that it just gives people freedom to move on to the next thing and say all right well now I know that now I'm just gonna do better and not expect that that's the end of your journey. You will never make it to the Emerald City. (laughs) You will forever be walking the path of experiences and learning. So who inspires you, you know, like every day? I mean, like, wow. I mean, like, I know you said you're a positive person, but you know, like, how do you deal with, say, burnt out and getting tired? I mean, like, what do you do uh, for yourself? Uh, well, first, who inspires me? I think the people that inspire me the most are the ones that are most like me, where they're always like, ooh, shiny. (laughs) 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 Uh, Susan Thixton, uh, Barbara Royal, Karen Becker, like those people, (laughs) they're always too busy to keep up with themselves. And anytime that I am in that situation, which is most of the time I'm like well they're doing it too (laughs) like they're doing amazing things and they're still trucking along and even though it's really exhausting and hard and there can be pushback they're still just going and I can do it too so um, just people that are uh, not just willing to do those things but the people that are passionate about it they're like yeah Another thing. I totally don't have time for that. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, As as far as self-care goes, uh, I don't feel like I don't have enough time for myself or energy for myself. I, I try to acknowledge what what my personality traits are in a way that supports what I'm doing. So like, I'm a really fidgety person. So I love watching movies, but I'm not good about just sitting around while I watch them. So like I hand make jewelry and I type articles and I do like 50 different things while I'm watching movies. So I watch a lot of movies, half watch, (laughs) but that works really well for me. So I've acknowledged that like, that's a thing that I need in my life. I could easily be like, oh, I'd probably get this done faster or more effective if I didn't watch a movie, but I'd lose my sanity. So just acknowledge what is important to you and how you yourself function and don't worry at all about how other people do it. It just, you got to do what works for you. I love that. Thank you. That's really inspiring. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people, they have this cookie cutter image of what is success, you know, and, and how to get there, you know, um, what would your definition of a successful day be? Accomplishing something that made you happy. The end. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there are things that make me happy that are really insignificant, like just uh, sending an email to my staff that I should have sent a week ago. <laughs> and there are things that are really big, like, you know, finishing that yellow grease document, like that one, it took me a while to get so many references into that one. And like, I had a 27 page long document that got published in the AFCO um, not in the book, but on their website for a review. And that was, I think it had something like 157 references for them. So it took a lot of time to put together. Um, so that was a really big success too. So it can be, you know, anywhere, just as long as you feel good about it, then it's a success. Wow. You know, whenever I think about you and research, you know, my, I, I'm like, my hair stands up because I'm just imagining you really like, like going, looking and, 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 and trying to find references and the sources and everything. Usually, how long would it take for you to write an article? Well, I just did one um, that was really comprehensive and should probably inflict some pretty substantial change that I started on Tuesday and finished on Thursday. <laughs> and then I've had other ones that take six months, sometimes a year. Actually, um, I'm doing a project right now with uh, a bunch of people. Barbara Royal is a primary um, that Karen Becker pretty much begged me to do for like two years. And I was like, no, it's not possible. No, 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 no. And then finally, I had had enough time to think through it and be like, okay, maybe it's possible. Okay, we'll do it. So in that sense, from conception to where we're at now, which is the beginning stages, it's like two years. So sometimes it takes you a long time to wrap your mind around something enough to be able to move forward with it. And same thing as what I said earlier, you can't fault yourself for that either. When you're ready, you're ready. You know, a lot of people, they, they, they're, they're obviously, they're not like you. When they hit a wall or they don't know, they say like, I don't know, it's too difficult. I can't do this, you know. Um, how do you, how do you go about looking for your sources and your references? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people, I think when they read your articles, they're just like jaw dropped, you know, like, wow, how did you find these things? You know? Yeah, uh, I think for the most part, if it matters, then I will only use official sources. And I think that that helps the most because when you're using unofficial sources, it leaves so much room for people to argue with you. So like using FDA, USDA, CDC, uh, MSDS, like material safety data sheets, if you're referencing some kind of chemical, or even in this industry, <laughs> feed ingredient, it's still going to be registered as a chemical. So finding like a scientific document that says this is what this is, it makes it really irrefutable. So I tend to completely disregard what other people wrote, which is exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm creating the things that I would disregard. <laughs> and so 
like I said earlier, I always wish that people would just not read what I wrote and just read my references. And a lot of times that's what I do to find good references is I find a document that looks interesting and I don't read it. I go straight to the bottom and I find their references and I only read those. Would, did you get any training for this or, you know, like, was Mm-mm. it trial and error or did you, I don't know, were you born like this? <laughs> um, no, I think, I, I guess I've never really thought about it. I think that it's probably just what I learned that I have to do because everything in this industry is so controversial. Like, well, corn is healthy for dogs. Oh, well, is it though? <laughs> so if you're going to fight over something as little as whether or not corn is healthy, then you got to have really good material to back up what you're looking at. And again, it's, it's always a matter of me trying to identify the conversation that we should be having. Should we be talking about whether corn is healthy or not? No, because that's not what's being used in pet food. We're using chemicals. So what's that conversation? And, you know, at a point I could say, well, I don't know. What is it? Let's find out. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. So it's actually asking the, the right questions or better questions to get the conversation going as well. Yeah. So I would say that maybe I was born with that, just an ability to be like, I don't think that that really matters, but something similar to that does matter or we wouldn't be talking about it. So what is that? What's that question? And where do I find that answer? You have a very inquiring mind. (laughs) Very, very inquiring mind. So what do you normally, I mean, like, okay, I know you read a a lot of um, official sources every day, but do you do any recreational reading or, you know? (laughs) or you just watch your movies and that's your that's your thing (laughs) I so even my recreational reading is still nerdy (laughs) I'm gonna read this in Spanish to learn Spanish um (laughs) still like uh I have yeah cancer books like like thick um things about cancer where I don't have to know about cancer. I have a lot of people that ask me about it, but I just think that it's interesting. So recreationally, I totally don't have time for it. I'm like, I'm going to go research cancer. (laughs) Oh, I love you. You're so amazing. Oh my God. Your mind is beautiful. You have a beautiful mind. Thank you. Um, So, so for any of my listeners or pet parents who, you know, they, they want to, read your articles where can they find them well they are kind of all over but uh, i post a lot on foodregulationfacts.com and those ones are more associated with regulation and things that don't specifically associate with a product or how to use something or why you might uh, use this versus that on heroespets.com i have a blog and those articles are generally about um, not necessarily specific products but like cost and convenience are a really big thing like you have to get over those hurdles to make something work so you know say that you want to know more about fish stock I'll write an article about fish stock but then like what do I do if it's really stinky and I don't want it in my fridge or what if I'm on a tight budget how much is this going to cost like I do a lot of 
analytical things that help people get over those common hurdles on that site. And then outside of that, I have some things published in IVC and um, Mercolial Healthy Pets and all of the other people that people already know better than they know me. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, thank you. You know, I really enjoyed today's conversation. I'll be honest, I I came into this this interview like, I know I want to interview her. I'm not sure what she does. I have an idea, but I need to find out more. And I'm so grateful and thankful that you opened up and shared so much um, today. You know, seeing how you're such an uh, introvert, uh, uh, you know, person, you know, I, I really want to thank you for, for your time and, mm -hmm. and for your mind share, you know. And on behalf of all the pet parents out there around the world, who you know who who read your articles or heard your name and and they're trying to find out you know to better equip themselves thank you so much for what you do oh thank you and you're welcome <laughs> wow i'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast it would mean the world to me if you could subscribe download rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.